Before we start this episode, I'd like to thank MSI and StormFX for supporting the creative community and helping make this episode possible. My name's Matthew Packwood, and welcome to Masters of Motion. Each episode, I'll be talking to some of Australia's and New Zealand's leading motion design, animation, and visual effects artists. Today, I'll be chatting with Animation Series Creative Director, Joe Bogue, from SLR Productions. In 2001, Joe co-created and directed her first animation series, Gloria's House. Joe has gone on to direct hundreds of episodes of children's television series, including Space Nova, Guess How Much I Love You, Captain Flynn and the Pirate Dinosaurs, I've Got a Rocket, and many more. She's also been widely acclaimed throughout the industry, winning both an Emmy and an Australian Directors Guild Award as well as receiving the B&T Women in Creative Media Award. Alrighty, let's get into it. Thanks very much, Joe, for taking the time and coming in and sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you. I look forward to sharing it with you. What makes a high-quality illustration and design portfolio? If you're a specialist, uh, such as you're a background artist, like to see black and white, good perspective and good uh, colour work showing depth and tone. If you're a character designer, showing a range of characters, human, animal, mythical. Yep. And also really important, if you're doing characters, we really look at hands and feet and body balance because that for us shows that you can understand a character in space. How would you present that portfolio? How many pieces and how would you bring it in to show it? Most people send in uh, their folio either as a PDF and we we keep those on file or if it's a link to a, a website, we usually keep that in a Word document and just have that link to that. Okay. Really clearly marked, you know, this is my storyboards, these are backgrounds, this is character design, this is concept work, really breaking it down into those areas because what you want to show is that you have the skill set to be used across production. Yep. If you're just a specialist, then show your range within that speciality. Okay. And how many pages do you reckon a portfolio should be? Nobody wants to see pages and pages, but they want to see variety so rather than repetition of the same things it's better to show difference for layouts backgrounds we'd want to see five to ten yep if there's character designs again you want to show more than one but not over 20. so it's sort of diversity over size yeah diversity over quantity definitely yep cool What are you looking for when reviewing CVs and portfolios of people who want to lead and be supervisors? Uh, We like to see someone who's actually got a strong experience in that skill set. Yeah. 
they've actually worked on shows that have had a long form. So we, the, during that time, we can see that you've had to tick over from episode to episode and you've had to you know, confront different challenges that that brings in terms of the volume of content. It's a different to a feature film. We've had people who have come from feature film in, into long form and they found it quite a struggle because we just don't have the same amount of time on any given area. Yep. To lead in, the, in an area, you need to have that relevant experience. If you're working as like an illustrator in production and you want to step up to be a supervisor, what are the sort of things you need to put forward to get that role? To show that rather than ask for it. Yep. We can see very clearly those people that have initiative, they're the ones that actually uh, finish the job, they ask the questions, they, if they make a mistake, they own it and they fix it. That's the kind of stuff that shows leadership. So if you're in a production and you just clock on and clock off and you don't really do more than is required, which is totally fine, you know, we need people like that in a production, but that is observed. Okay. When you're working on any job, you need to always remember that you're being watched by the rest of your team. (laughs) That's a pretty big statement. It's true though. It's that's 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 how, you know, most opportunities for leadership come from people who see leaders. Cool. Alrighty. How many ideas for shows does SLR get uh, submitted yearly? So we get a lot of shows, maybe five to ten shows a year where people have gone to the ABC with an idea and their ABC said, Look, we really like it, but you need to have an experienced production team behind you so we also then get pitch shows by companies that are like us that want to co-produce with us and we also get pitch shows from publishers okay it can be up to 20 shows a year in all those different forms so it's not individual artists pitching shows and ideas we do have some individual artists or we might have writers come to us that we've worked with that know the way that we work and they've got an idea to pitch to us. What makes a good proposal? You know, there's originality, but there's also the market sometimes wants original but familiar, which is something that we often get told by broadcasters or commissioning people. Yeah. And what that means is that the audience is not going to have to be challenged to try something completely new because that's always hard to get people on board. Yeah. There's a kind of a zeitgeist in culture where we're kind of making similar kinds of shows you know there's no it's no surprise that there's a lot of dystopian zombie what's the future like at the moment because that is in the psyche of the world it's a bit ironic because i actually don't want to watch that at the moment i want to watch happy stories because (laughs) exactly and so then you'll see that flip to being light and comedy and and stuff which is optimistic cool Alrighty. So, what TV shows, music, magazines or books inspired you when you were growing up? I just loved all cartoons. I mean, when I was growing up, it was all Saturday morning cartoons and um, afternoon cartoons. Lots of Hanna-Barbera, Flintstones, Smurfs, Jetsons, and then the Looney Tunes and Disney. And then, of course, all the 80s, uh, like He-Man, Wonder Twins. Yeah. I really loved those that had multiple episodes. I think that's kind of why I ended up in the long form as opposed to feature film animation. I watched the Smurfs and I thought it was not very good mm. lately. I rewatched it and I'm like, 
And that's that whole thing of like understanding your audience. Those shows were made not with an adult head on them. You have to not put your adult head and be judgmental. That's interesting. What I've learned as a parent, watching content that I think is really well executed, beautifully designed, my kids will turn away from because the stories are too complex and the characters aren't that interesting. It doesn't matter how beautiful and well executed something is, if it doesn't cover the basics, yep. then you lose your audience because that audience isn't filtered with judgment. We are. Yeah, well, He-Man and She-Ra in the morning before school yeah. uh, was like a cultural thing. It was a cultural thing, yeah. What movies or TV are you enjoying at the moment? We were watching a lot of old Stanley Kubrick and uh, my son's really into uh, Jong Boon-ho at the moment. He wants to watch anything by Korean filmmakers. Uh, so really varied, which is fantastic because that for me is – uh, it gets inspiring. And then, of course, uh, we're going through our TV catalogues, watching IT Crowd, Fly of the Concords, Wellington Paranormal. I love all the Agatha Christie's. So, um, Agatha Christie's. Oh, I love <laughs> them. All the BBC ones. I, I prefer Mid- the ones. Midsummer that, Murders. Oh, yeah, Midsummer, you know, oh, Poirot. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> because the thing about those, that content that's that's great about them and why they work as a genre is that, satisfying from a story because there's a clear beginning, middle and end. When did you discover illustration and animation and how did you become passionate about it? I always loved drawing and I was lucky that my mum worked in the thing called family daycare. Yep. So I have a sister who's 12 years younger so I grew up with little kids in the house. One of her clients was a lady who worked at Disney in the layout department and she got me work experience when I was 15 in a place called Burbank Films which was a animation company that was making animated feature film for America and in that week I got to see a professional studio Uh, I loved drawing and uh, that seemed like a natural path Cool. Uh, And it's amazing how the industry's changed, like the Disney studios came and went. Mm. The industry really sort of evolves. Absolutely, definitely, yeah. We had Hanna-Barbera out here, um, which was bought out by Walt Disney. So we have a really solid people who worked for Disney, you know, the Lion King, straight to movies, the Aladdin, the Winnie the Pooh. They were all done out here in Sydney. Yeah, which is pretty cool and a lot of young people wouldn't know anything about that sort of production that was made. No, exactly. So I worked with people who um, worked on the Flintstones and the Smurfs, actually. So it was great in terms of the lineage. That would have been pretty inspiring. Yeah, absolutely. So could you briefly explain your career path from start to now? Once I finished uni, I had an opportunity to work at Yoram Gross Films and I started out there as a cell painter. So I was literally painting cells on uh, The Magic Riddle, which was a film they were making. After doing that, I went overseas, as you do as a young person, for a little while and came back and I did some freelance work in in commercials and then I got a, a job at Energy Entertainment. So I was in betweening the animation on paper, in a traditional animation. Yep. Uh, then I had the opportunity to do some animation. Yep they needed someone in the layout department so I moved into the layout department and my layout supervisor had a period of being unwell so I ended up having to step up and 
supervise that department. After, I suppose, showing that I had the ability to do that, I ended up being thrown to be an assistant to the director. And I worked in storyboards there with the director and distributing his notes through the whole production. And I I sold a show with a friend called Gloria's House. Wow, that's cool. To the company, to NG Entertainment. They sold it to RTV, a German network, and Channel 7. And I was thrown into directing. And how old were you at that time? I was 28. So I'd been in the industry for about four years. Is that young for a director? Well, I thought it was. I wasn't ready. I think because I designed the show, for them it was just natural that I would direct it because it was in my head. Did you continue directing? I then became the the in-house director. We had, Whatever job was going in the company, I ended up being the director, so be it a small job or a big job. What happened after that? They got bought out by RTV, uh, a big German network. By that stage, I was in my early 30s. The, I got a, um, a redundancy and I was about five months pregnant. So it was a, it was a perfect time to actually take some time out. And I was actually in the middle of directing a show for called Mormal TV for RTV, this new company that had taken over. And uh, so I just went freelance and it was, it was a small job. It was like uh, 26, three-minute episodes. So I was able to do that um, over the kind of first year of my daughter's birth. And then I just actually took some time out to just be a parent. So I really enjoyed having some time away from the industry because it's an all-or-nothing industry. After you stopped to spend time with your family, how did you break back into the industry? Working with Suzanne Ryan at SLR Productions. So she was in her early mid-30s as well. So she wanted to, she was setting up her own company. She'd uh, got the rights to Deadly, the book by Morris Gleitzman and Paul Jennings. And was that SLR's first project? That was SLR's first project, yes. So you've been there since the beginning. How's your role changed over that period? I have evolved as the company's grown and that's where my skill set has been able to grow across everything that we do. And then how many years have you been at SLR? 15 years now. Cool. That was not all full-time, so I, I was part-time for probably with my two young children for the first four or five years. Do you recommend working part-time when you've got small kids? Absolutely. It all depends on your family balance. But for me, it was really important that I was able to be part of my kids' lives. And I really enjoyed it. For me, working in children's television, I learned so much being a parent of young kids about my storytelling and understanding my audience. Because really before that, I think you have an adult sensibility and you judge things with an adult mind. Cool. And what advice would you have for young women who want to have a career and are thinking about having kids? I think that uh, you should just find out where your skill set is and be really good at it. How do you develop your confidence in regards to having a family and work? I was lucky because when I first started my career, I worked with a lot of women who were doing what I did. So I actually had role models there. I think when you can see it, and most workplaces have them in there, Women who are working part-time are the best workers in a project. They just come in and do the work because they're so time poor that they actually are really efficient workers. So we have no problem working with people who are 
parents. <laughs> they're, the, they're the best workers. <laughs> well, a few years ago, I went part-time and looked after the kids and it just made me an intense person. Yeah. Between 9 and 3.30. Yeah, I exactly. I was like a machine. And then I would go off to do the kids' stuff. Yeah. Have you got any specific failures that you want to talk about and what did you learn from them? Every production I have worked on has had a major problem because the nature of the team, something that's happened that's outside of your control or the actual project's just not going in the right direction. When you say a major problem, what what are you thinking? You're in production, you've got a supervising producer and that person leaves and then they another person comes in and they have a different expectation. Yep. Or the... The broadcaster that you've been working for is suddenly saying those kinds of shows don't work for us and yet they've got all these shows in production that are like that and they suddenly say to you, we need you to change. It needs to be funnier. It needs to have more comedy, more action and that's out of your control. And what do you do in those situations? Well, we just have to do what they ask. We work together and try to do what we can. It really depends on where we are in production. Do you ever have any sinking feelings and then how do you turn yourself around from that? They can come up in in ways where you just your gut is telling you something's not right, you should say something. And the thing I've learned is to actually say it out loud and ask for a second opinion. Yep. It's always good to vocalise that with someone who's experienced. You can actually get their opinion and then together work to resolve that because they may not see it as a problem, and, but when you bring it up, they realise, yeah, look, we should really address that. Okay. Can you give us an example of a sinking feeling and something you've done about it? might be something where you can see a department's really starting to fall back because this one person's just not coping. Yep. And then we have to go, are they the right person for that job? We have to change that. And we have to make hard decisions and say, look, we don't think you're coping. We need to take you out of that position and put someone else in there. And do you think those decisions should be made quickly? Oh, absolutely. Because if a person is sinking in a production, there's there's a reason, you know, they're not coping. Yep. And to you pay the cost at the other end because you can't buy back the time like we work on productions that have got deadlines at the other end and they're long deadlines that seem comfortable when you're in the middle but the back end is going to pay and if someone's struggling in their job what do you think they should do well they should always just talk to their supervisor and say look i'm not coping the amount of notes i need more support or the quality, I can't keep this quality going. And then the producer and myself, we have to look at really what are we asking? Is Are the notes that are being asked reasonable? Are they asking for things that seem outside of scope and budget? Yep. If that's the case, for example, if it's the overseeing producer at this broadcaster that's making us do these, we, we sit down with them and have a discussion and say, look, the amount of notes that you're giving are making the production really hard to work with and we can't do them all. Okay. What would a good manager do when he finds out that somebody's struggling if someone comes to him or her? Well, a good leader should actually just acknowledge that and actually not just say, just cope with it because that's not the answer. There's the, the solution is to actually change the situation. Cool. And what was the hardest thing that you had to learn to progress your career? Balancing my own expectations yep. and being realistic about 
what is worth my blood, sweat and tears. Because every project you have to go over and beyond and you have to decide which is the part that's going to matter. Do you think that your own expectations are what drives you? Yes. And do you think that your own expectations cause you to work harder and longer and maybe lose balance sometimes? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's that's the challenge when you um, you kind of start to burn out, particularly in a long-form production because it's a long haul. It's a marathon. Yeah. You know, I, I tend to have like a couple of really big days in a week where I know I need more than the, the time in the day that I've been allocated to get through it. Yeah. Then I will just, you know, go, I got through that moment and I'm just going to do what's needed for the next couple of days. Cool. All righty. Excellent answer. So now I'm going to move on to energy entertainment. Yep. Cool. How did you get the role at energy entertainment? Is there a story behind that? There is actually. I had been working overseas in London, living as a poor student as you do. So when I came back to Australia, I was like, I am not going to work until I work in the industry. Yep. These are the days before there were emails. Uh, I did a CV, but I made it as a comic strip. Cool. Instead of putting my CV in words, I did a visual of my experience. Yeah. In the end, I did a picture of me on my hands and knees begging for an opportunity. And it seemed to work. I got a call from Energy Entertainment and they just put me in as an in-betweener. In the Peter Visker interview, he talked about he would just find someone who's a good illustrator and has a good feel and then he'd put them in as an in-betweener and that's how they would start. Well, that's yeah, that's what happened to me. (laughs) I listened to it yesterday. That's exactly what he said. Yeah. But he was talking about how we trained them on the grunt work. And that's how I got trained in the grunt work. What was it like getting your concept, Gloria's House, selected for development and then production? It, it was a big surprise and I think I was surprised right to the end that I ended up directing it as well. So explain to us how many episodes there was and what was the story and concept? We did 26 half-hour episodes and it was set in Paddington. I was living at the time in the worst house in the best street in Paddington. Yeah. And uh, that's kind of really what the show is about. It's about two neighbours the perfects and the nits. The perfects was posh and the nits were just very country. And how did the original idea evolve? It was started out as a book idea uh, between a friend of mine that I was at uni with. She'd written this idea called The Nits and I illustrated it. And how did you initially get people interested in the idea? I can't even remember how. We showed it to my, one of my producers who really liked it and thought that there was a story, a series in that, and so they optioned it. And so I, it was a big surprise. What sort of money do you get uh, and do you get any royalties over any particular toys or anything that were made? The reality is people who go into this industry thinking that there's money in licensing is that you have to just go to a toy shop or Kmart, Target, look at the toys on the shelf and go, to get on that shelf, I need to knock off one of those competitors. Yeah. And you're looking at long, evergreen properties that uh, have been on the shelf since you were a little kid. Yeah. That's just a pipe dream. And the royalties and fees? What they give you is a fee to try to sell the show. How much do you reckon? If you're a first-timer, you won't get much. It can be $500 or That's a... That's not much. Once the show gets up, then there's usually a, a one-off fee. It can be between 10000 10, and uh, or it can be 200000 It really depends on your experience and what who you are. 
Okay. That's interesting. With Gloria's House, was it a, a show of the time? The characters were sort of unusual and quirky and sort of, it was a bit dark, I thought. Yes, it is. It was very. I, I really loved the um, Klasky Chupo uh, animation that was coming out of Nickelodeon, Our Real Monsters and Rugrats. It had that real hand-drawn sensibility about it and I wanted it to be a bit kind of, not ugly, but just not pretty. Was there any of yourself in there, in Gloria? There was a little bit of Gloria in me. Yep. I came from a big Celtic family that was a bit rowdy and where family was everything. Yep. And as I say, I was living in the worst house in the best street at the time. The thing I loved about Gloria and her family was just that they were who they were. They didn't have to change to fit in. And I think that's really what it was about. It's about, you know, you don't have to, just because you live in an area, you don't have to change to, to be that person that people think you need to be. And where the Smurfs didn't stand up after 40 years, I watched Gloria's House and I think it still stands up as animation and if you had a high-quality version of it now, you could run it today and kids would watch it and love it. Because it doesn't look like anything of today. Yep. I'm most satisfied is if we've made something that looks like itself and it's not trying to be an American show or a show that I think is great. You shouldn't just try to make another show of something that you think is great. It's already great. They've done it. Just make something else. Cool. All righty. Now I want to talk about being a first-time director. What was the biggest challenge for you being a first-time director and how did you overcome those challenges? The biggest thing for me was that I was directing people who were a lot older and a lot more experienced than me. And I remember expressing that to one of my producers and they said, people are wanting to be directed by you because you have an original idea. It doesn't matter about your experience. Yep. Help them to realize your idea. And I think that gave me the confidence to know that if I'm surrounded by people who are more experienced than me, then I can get the best out of them. I don't have to be the best at what they do. I just need to get the best out of them. Did it take you a long time to feel like you were on top of it or did you come yeah. in uneasy or did you feel confident straight away? No, no. I, I, I think through that production, I really built in confidence in trusting my instincts and not having to get second opinions. Okay. And that would be in the nature of storytelling, not in the character design or the background design. Cool. Alrighty. And what did you enjoy about the process of directing? The thing I love most is when I do a, a drawing that's a bit unrealized and I give it to someone and they realize it. That for me is like pure joy when someone else takes it to that next level. Cool. What advice would you have for a first-time director or project leader? Get people who are really good at what they do and a range of personalities because some, sometimes people can be really good at what they do but they're really quiet and they're not very expressive. But if you can develop a relationship with them, you can get the best out of them without them having to be feeling they have to be extroverted to be part of a team. Yep. So I think it's actually understanding your team and having diversity in that team because you can't have all people with egos. There's a lot of egos in our industry which is important because people who have egos have got a very clear sensibility about what they think is great. But if you have too many egos, you don't have enough collaboration. 
what do you say to a first-time director who doesn't know what to do? So you have to trust that the reason you're in this position is because someone saw that you've got the what it takes. So that's the first thing, you have to trust yourself. And then if you're out of your depth is just ask um, the question, ask, ask for help. Don't expect that you have to know everything and be honest. Yeah. What about confidence? And sometimes you have to bluff it because, you know, confidence is something that people expect you to have. Cool. So when you were having your children and you left Energy Entertainment, you worked on a Sesame Street project. Could you tell us a little bit about that? It was just such a delightful job. It came to me via a producer I had been working with where I got to do eight very different, they're all about a minute each, uh, a minute and a yep. half each, all, and it was a completely open brief. It was like it had to have numbers, letters, uh, or counting, or um, nature. It just, you had to pitch the ideas to them. So um, I did one which was about knitting, and it was it was about counting through knitting. And I did one where it was a boy sitting in a bath, and then the bath became the ocean, so it was about imagination. Uh, one which was about counting bugs in a garden. They're all very different in style, and um, I got to design up all the characters. The animation was done overseas. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was just a delightful job. Working on Sesame Street, did it have any effect on your career? Not particularly, no. I grew up watching the those gorgeous little, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Everyone has like that. So I got to do one of those. I love it when you work on something that is iconic. Yeah, it had an impact on you. Yeah. Okay. So after Sesame Street and Children, you went to work with Suzanne at SLR Productions. Could you briefly just list off the projects that you've done from the start to now? I came on uh, to be a consultant director on Deadly. And then we, at the same time as that, we were developing a show called I Got a Rocket with a US company. Then we did uh, Dex Hamilton, was in a, a Canadian co-production. And then we did Gasp. That was a great Terry Denton book adaptation. And we did uh, Skinner Boys, uh, Captain Flynn the Pirate Dinosaurs, Lexi and Lottie, Guess How Much I Love You, Berry Bees, uh, Alice Miranda, and now we're doing Space Nova. Cool. Well, that is an extensive body of work over 15 years. How many episodes do you reckon? Hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of episodes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we're talking hundreds of episodes over a long period of time, 15 years. Yeah. What were the main challenges for the production company over that period? Starting up and settling down after each project. And uh, the industry in uh, certainly Sydney, we share a lot of our great talent. That's been a great thing because people going away and coming back with more experience from, from what they've learned on another show, it's actually really healthy. Yep. And so that, but that's challenging when you've actually got to gear up and gear down with new people each time because of availability. You know, the people who were great before might not be available this time. That's interesting. Building your team each time is the challenge. Do you keep many staff on full-time over the period? We contract people for long periods of time. It can be uh, nine months to a year and a half. So they're quite long contracts. Cool. Are there many people who've stayed the length from the beginning to now? The production manager, 
Yasmin Jones. Yep. Uh, so a lot of the people who've been working with us have actually been working with us for over 15 years, but they've just come and gone over that time. And what are the main positions? Finance, business, production and direction. We're all core staff. And then everything in between builds up and as we need it. You have a, a female leadership team. Yes. And you've done a lot of female content with strong female characters. Yep. Has that been a conscious choice over the period? Because I control all the character design, I, from script, I can make the decision to say, let's make that bus driver a woman. Let's make the mayor of the town a woman. Let's make the doctor a woman. So because sometimes you people just consciously write the bus driver and they'll say, 55-year-old male. And so I'll say, no, let's make it a young Indian woman. And so I'll look, I'll look up bus drivers and go, that looks like a bus driver that we haven't seen before. Let's put her in. So you can make those choices. Where I grew up, it was a 45-year-old Lebanese man. Yeah. Was, was actually the bus driver. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, old Italian immigrant. Uh, yeah. In our Space Nova show at the moment, we've got an Indigenous astronomer and she's a fantastic character. And the lady who's playing her said to us, you know, if you can't see it, you can't be it. And that really resonated with me is that if you can't see it as a child, then you can't be it. Yeah. SLR has broken barriers being a female leadership team. Has there been much recognition in the industry, yourself and Suzanne's success over the period? Suzanne and myself both were acknowledged at the B&T Women of the Year Awards. So she won Best Producer and I won Best Creative, the company. The company is also, we won at state level the New South Wales Export Awards. Cool. So we're actually up against Rode Microphones, who won, <laughs> which was a bit hard, you know. But that was fantastic to, to acknowledge us as an export company because we have worked with so many international companies and all our content is exported. Did you go and pick your Emmy up? No, we didn't actually because we did really didn't think we had a chance of winning it. It was it was <laughs> so <laughs> got to be disappointed at that. So the company we were working with at the time picked it up for us, but we just didn't get to be there in person. <laughs> what is your present role at SLR Productions in Tail, and can you describe your day to day? I'm currently directing a second 80-minute telly movie as well as for Alice Miranda. That's for Channel 9 and and Stan. And I'm also post-supervising Space Nova, our show for ABC. And your average day? I will start the day. I'll look at some comp shots on the shotgun through the studio overseas. Just And I'm not actually commenting on them, but I look at everything just to know where things are at. Yep. Um, I, I do I do dip in uh, big, big picture. So if I see something where, for example, a character looks really too angry and they're coming across as out of character, I'll say something about that. Or if I think that the, the colour is, is not working, I'll just mention it to the director and the director will follow through. What about reviewing the audio? I listen to music, so I, I, um, I work with a musician, so I'll listen to a music for an episode. I make all the notes. I distribute the notes to the broadcasters, I tell them what we're going to fix because that's really important. If you just send over content without saying how you're going to fix it, you'll get lots of notes. That's a really big thing we've learned to do. Send over all your content with what you acknowledging what's not working 
and then tell them how you're going to fix it. Give them confidence. Cool. That's that's a good tip. When you say you were using Shotgun, yeah, how do you find using Shotgun? Oh, I love it. It's so great. Particularly, well, this is with a sh- company we're working with in Malaysia, Giggle Garage. And it's just so easy to use. It's just the best uh, interface uh, between productions. How long have you been using Shotgun for? Oh, we've only used Shotgun on this particular. Um, it, it all depends. Every company has a different process. And because we work with so many different um, companies, we work to the system that we don't, we don't demand systems. Do you think you'll use Shotgun again in the future? Would you recommend it? Yeah, I recommend it. I think anyone who's working in the 3D pipeline would be using Shotgun in between companies in animation. Cool. It's pretty interesting. So could you describe your pipeline of 2D development and 3D development and yeah, what software, hardware and renderers that you use? We use obviously Photoshop for all our creating content in terms of designs, characters, um, some illustrators sometimes and flash if we, uh, flash is not being used so much. It was, there was a period there where flash was the dominant kind of animation. So we'd have to create all our characters in flash, okay. vector-based. Um, depending on the company that we're working with, we can just send them over black and white Photoshop files. Uh, so yeah, we use Toon Boom Storyboard Pro, yep. um, but not everyone uses it. Some of our artists just prefer to work in Photoshop and send us JPEGs, which is totally fine as well. Is it okay, Joe, if we have a quick break now to thank our sponsors? Absolutely. If you're looking for a fantastic mobile workstation that is designed for the entertainment and creative industries, whether it's for processing complex 3D or 2D workflows in design, multimedia, illustration, animation, CG or visual effects, MSI's high-end mobile laptops, provide one of the best solutions available for creative professionals. For over 27 years, StormFX has been providing the technology that powers the Australian and New Zealand creative industries. Whether your focus is in animation or VFX, we are experienced in providing the technology insights and the solutions you need to get through your challenges and realise your dreams. Let's get back into it. Okay, I'm ready. All right, cool. You guys at SLR do all the design, the development, the script, the post-production. Yep. And you outsource the animation, is that correct? That's right, yes. And that depends on the producer, the broadcaster, where the money's coming from, really. So explain to us the role of the creative director. The way that the creative director works at SLR is it's a bit like a showrunner. So I direct the development of the show. Um, I will come up, work with the concept of whatever or the adaptation that we're doing, work with the the artist to actually visualise it. And then usually the director doesn't come on board until we're starting production and we've got a green light. Okay. But I'm always sitting on top of them as a director in between the producer and the director. How about Alice Miranda? For Alice Miranda, I am directing it fully, directing where I'm having to do all the individual comments for every part of the production. Yeah, so you've done some shows as a director and some shows as a creative director, which is more like a showrunner. 
it's like a showrunner, but I have to step in at any stage in any part of the production and take over when if it's falling apart. That's my role. That's And that's where understanding every department means I can just step in and run that department. Joe, special responder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I, a lot of the times I do feel like that. Cool. What are the most important qualities that a creative director needs? A creative director needs to have an understanding of the big picture. What is the heart of this thing? And and be true to that thing that it's selling. Whether it's comedy, make sure the comedy's present. If it's character-driven, make sure the characters are interesting. Because when you get into the nuts and bolts of directing, you're looking at a shot-by-shot, solving all the problems at the minutia end. The creative director has to look at the big picture and really be the umbrella visualizer of how we're going to deliver the show that it needs to be. That's the how you do it, but what about the personality traits? A creative director needs to be a really good communicator. I learned from a director who was a great director but a terrible communicator, and what I observed was that they made everyone doubt their ability. They kept coming back and saying, that's not what I want. It was the kind of direction where they couldn't see what they needed until they saw it. Okay. But I saw in that as a person in in that machine, the doubt and um, lack of clarity that that gave you as an individual. So for me, as a creative director, if I'm briefing people and they're not giving me what I want, it's not them, it's me. I'm not being clear about what I need. It's funny, I sort of think creative direction is a bit like raising children. You creative direct your children and if you give them positive feedback and you encourage them and... You don't belittle them in any way. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. You make people feel valued as being part of a team and um, that their contribution, what, what they're contributing, whether it be small or big, is so needed in the production. So, yeah, always saying thank you. Yeah, well, I think the, for me it's also that the only thing is that you can't sack your children. <laughs> <laughs> like it's, No, you know, but you can punish uh, them. <laughs> yeah. That's I don't punish. punish I don't punish. I'm I'm terrible. I'm always like with my kids. Oh, if you just don't do it, I'm just gonna have to think of a reason that's really good enough. But I just really, I'm just asking you reasonably. Can you just do it? I don't. I, I do that too. I don't have any threats. Not- it's just better if you just do it. I don't have to threaten you. Uh, I live in a constant state of disappointment when I ask them to do things. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and then that's that's the challenge of having no punishment. Yes. <laughs> You basically direct everybody, illustrators, designers, audio engineers. Yep. Voice talent, the lot. Yep, I do. What's the key thing that's important to directing everybody? I never tell people how to do their job. I tell them what I need out of their job. So, for example, I never tell a composer how to write music. I tell them what is a problem with the scene is that there's not enough music, that the scene is feeling too empty. We need to have support the emotion a bit more, yeah. highlight the comedy because the comedy is a little bit too subtle. Yeah. I don't tell them where to put the, put the musical beats. And so that's the worst thing you can do in any kind of direction is tell them because then you're actually saying to them, I don't trust that you know what you're doing rather than saying, this is what I need your skill to give me. Can you expand on that? Give us an example. 
Don't just tell them to make it lighter in those areas. Tell them why it needs to be lighter in those areas because it's feeling it's feeling depressing. It needs to feel like we want to feel mood, but we don't want it to feel dystopian. So it's much better to use words to describe how it's feeling as opposed to just telling them how to do it. Well, that That's great advice. With your communications, do you talk about budgets and pricing and timelines and no. like, or do you just talk about creative? A clear thing that's worked really well for us as a company is really clearly dividing those roles. So people know to talk to Yaz if they're running late or if they um, have a concern with the budget. Yeah. They never talk to me about it. I won't talk to them. If they ask about it, I direct them straight away because I find that when you cloud your creative conversation with economic, you can't actually, you're not talking professionally about what you need out of them anymore. So for me, it's really better to separate those conversations. Cool. Well, I wish you had given me that advice when I started my own studio. All right. (laughs) It took me many years to realize that, that just because you run the thing, doesn't mean that you need to do multiple hats. It's actually better when the producer talks the money and you talk the design and creative. Yeah, absolutely. It just keeps those lines clear. Cool. I agree totally. It's excellent. All righty. So now I want to talk about listening. As a creative director, can you explain how you absorb information and listen to your team? Well, I think it's quite simple. You just actually shut up and listen. <laughs> yeah. It's just it's active listening. It's not just actually hearing. It's actually analysing. Should you be thinking while you're listening? Yeah, absolutely, always. But but you can listen and think at the same time. Yeah, well, I, I sort of found that if I'm listening, I need to be listening. If I'm problem solving while listening, it doesn't work. But so you have a male brain. You don't have a female brain that can multitask. <laughs> 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 No. (laughs) All right, let's get back on track. Yeah. When you write or give briefs to an illustrator and designer, what are the important things that you want to point out? What is the best use of the money that we've got for this person's time? I'm dealing with people who are professionals, so I know that they're going to give me what I want. Yep. And I may, I may not get time to do this whole through the whole production, but I certainly do it for the first, you know, 10 or so shows where I will go in and I will brief, give really strong briefs of, of exactly the kind of location it needs to be, yep. the, um, who the characters I want to be like. That's the big thing that I've really taken hold of is that yep. all those incidental characters that are just on screen in the background, they matter because they're creating the culture of the show. And in music mm. and the script where you can't use visuals as much, what's your sort of written direction like? It's like never telling them how to do their job but telling them what's needed. Highlight the comedy, make the action feel more dynamic, it's feeling too slow, we need to make it feel more tense, keep the tension going, the tension stops too early. Yeah, It's all supporting the story. How do you know when your communication's going well? A sign of a great production for us is when we've had to, to hardly have communicate with our co-producers yeah. because it means that our communicating through the actual process is working. If you're having to have a lot of meetings, it means that people don't understand what they need, they need to do. So it's actually better to have less meetings. Okay. What's your approach to reviewing animation? You need to look at it 
individually and then also always look at it as a sequence because you can always find a problem in the individual moments. Does that five seconds make a difference within the 30 seconds? Yeah. Over this 30-second bit of animation, what's the most important bit? So you have to review small and big. What's an important area that you like to focus on? For me, eye lines are important. They're the thing that I think is the most important in a scene, making sure particularly eyeballs are looking at each other. If, if the eyeball line is wrong, then characters, the audience doesn't know what they're looking at. or what, what the, you know, An eyeball in the wrong position can make an eye look dead. How do you keep the production efficient? You're hard up front. I'm really hard on the first few episodes. I'm setting the standard. And also the big thing I find is to actually always look for the quality within rather than saying it needs to look like this Pixar movie. It's like, well, you don't have a Pixar budget. That shot had 25 retakes. We can't get to that because it's so subtle. Look for the quality within what you're being given and go, see that scene? That works really well. That's our quality measure. And that way you're actually making them work to their own measure as opposed to giving them these unrealistic measures. Cool. It's pretty interesting. What's your techniques for problem solving? And can you give us an example? So we were having a struggle with defining what the comic support sound sounds like. Yeah. It's a very subtle thing to support comedy. If it's too much, it feels cartoony. If it's not enough, it feels soft. And we were getting these um, notes from our broadcaster saying that it's just not hitting the point. The musician was getting really frustrated, naturally, that they just were getting these same feedback each time so what was your solution we took a small scene and we did four versions of comedy and we did it four different ways we did one that was really extreme one that was in between one that used different kind of instrumentation one that was a bit more classic and we sent that over to our broadcasters who were giving the notes in order to say look we just feel like we need to understand we're talking the same language i'm assuming they liked one of them yeah (laughs) That was a really great thing because then they said out of those four which they felt was the best approach. And a lot of the time it's hard when you're talking with creatives because sometimes people don't have the language to actually express what's not working. Because a lot of the time it is just a difference of of, um, subjective view and you just need to refine what it is that's not working. Cool. When you're going head-to-head with someone who's of equal stature in the production and they think one direction's correct and you think Mm. a different direction's correct, how do you resolve issues like that? That happens in every production. We just have to have discussions and work through what what they need and what we need and come to a level playing field. Um, You don't have to give in every time because you're making the show, but sometimes you can work with people who have very strong ideas about what it should be. So I think you just have to work through those. You have to always show that you're listening, make some of the changes, but not all, and just actually fight for the ones that you want to hold on to. Cool. You make it sound so easy. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. They used to always say, we're not delivering babies here. Exactly. It's not It's that. not life or death. It's like, it's just, let's just fix it. It's. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm, in a, I'm a life and death sort of guy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Over the years, that's brought me a lot more anxiety than what it's brought the people who are not like that. So I'm not sure I've benefited from that sort of behavior. No, in the end, we just go like, you know what? We'll solve it tomorrow when we're all feeling better.
So when an artist is moving on to a production, what's the sort of questions they should ask themselves to do their job well? What is my role in the pipeline? So you really need to understand your role in the pipeline. So they're asking me to do a task. I'm a prop designer and I'm designing a cup. It seems like a simple thing, but that cup can cause so many problems in the animation retakes because that cup keeps changing size and shape. So it's understanding why size comparison is important, why actually having several views of it is important. Is it going to be seen only in two scenes? So it's really understanding the big picture of what you're being asked for. And taking notes, do you like artists to take notes? Yep, taking notes is good. A good director will tell you what you need to do and you shouldn't have to guess. Cool. Okay, so directing voice talent. Yep. You work with kids a lot of the time. It sounds like you work with kids. Yep. What are your methods you use for briefing voice talent? Well, I work with kids and adults and I love working with actors. Working with kids is very different to working with adults. Uh, Working with kids, you need to make them feel comfortable. They need to feel, um, when I was working with very young kids, I would have them just talking to me. I wouldn't have earphones on them. I would just make sure that they felt natural in the space. And I would read the script like a storybook and then I would lead them to their line. So I would be all the characters and I would read the big print, the big picture. So it's like describing what the scene is and then little nut brown hair says, I'm sorry that you're feeling this way. What can I do? And then you say, and then that would take them into the moment. So I would frame the moment really clearly. And what about the environment around them? Does that come into it? Not having them feel like they were in a recording booth was really important. Once they get to a a certain age, um, I think anywhere above eight or nine, they like to feel cool. It feels cool to have earphones on and hear the microphone. So so that's good. You want them to feel cool and feel relaxed. Um, Less people in the room as possible. um, So that, you know, depending on, because sometimes you want vulnerability in in the actual performance. And so it's hard. It takes a lot of experience to be vulnerable in front of people. How long after the recording do you see the final animations? You don't see it for nine months after you've recorded it, animated. Wow, that's crazy. And and do you do a lot of rehearsal? No. Uh, generally, we'll do a rehearsal before the first record of the first episode, but generally I expect actors to come in prepared. It's Recording time is not rehearsal time, so the actors need to have read the script. I can tell sometimes the kids will come in and I'm like, you haven't read the script, have you? <laughs> and they'll be like, oh. And how do, you deal with, how do you deal with that? I just tell them, please read it next time. Come on, guys. You know, I just deal with it like a parent. We can deal with it in the moment. I can get them to where they need to be. But professional adults, I would, yeah, I would be very disappointed in them if they didn't read the script beforehand. I probably wouldn't use them again. Cool. Alrighty. If you're at the start of the production and you've got no animations to show them, how do you inspire them to get the performance? I always love to bring in as much design work that we've done. I show them the world, the character, whatever's done in the production, I bring it. So I like to inspire them to get them into the headspace. So what's your main tip for directing adult actors? never show them how to do their job. Again, it's just like any professional in the pipeline, but actors in particular, 
hate, <laughs> and I learned this very early on, if you tell them, if you actually try to do the line that you want them to do, again, you've got to get them to that place where it needs to be. Even if you know in your head, I want it to be said like this, you can't tell them to just say it like that because you will just get them offside because that's their job. If you can't show them, what's the best way to direct them? You need to say it needs to be pacier, it needs to be clearer, your punctuation is feeling sloppy, we need it to have more articulation, we need to have a little bit of comedy in there or it needs to feel a bit more serious. Use words to describe what you need but don't ever tell them, don't show them what you want because you will get them offside really quickly. Cool. Alrighty, that's that's excellent. I'm just picturing a sound booth in my head. Like it's all in the sound booth where I used to record stuff, all this story. Yeah, I love the, I love the recording side because and I love even more when I see what we've done nine months later and go, yes, that's what I was hoping for. I actually think the animation process is more of a craft where you build, but the live action directing and voice directing, it's a performance. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I walk away from those days feeling on top of the moon Yeah. where generally with animation I walk away feeling tired and exhausted. Yeah, uh, it is. There's a lot when, of thinking. Like I, uh, when I direct actors, I do not look at them and I say to them, I, I always let them know that I'm not looking at you because I can't, I have to hear the performance in your voice. Yeah. I have to imagine that the how the animation is going to work because if I look at you, I can see your expressiveness but that's actually a lie because I because I'm I'm reading your body language. So I I close my eyes and listen to the performances. You're not in another room. Uh, you're actually in the recording. No, I'm in another room. room. Usually they're in a little booth, yeah. and then I'm in yeah, another room. Yeah, they're in room. the booth. And yeah, yeah. But you can see them still. Yeah, they can. We can see each other, but I just never look at them. <laughs> Only in between yeah. when I'm Would briefing you- them, I do. But when I'm when I'm recording, I'm my eyes are closed. I'm listening. Like I've done my fair share of recording booths uh, and direction in them. Yeah, that's a good advice. I've never done that. I always listen to the door. I'm looking right at them. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting. Yeah, no, because quite often, I, early in my, when we did Big Ensemble Record for Gasp, we had all the actors in the room together and there was so it was such a great energy. But what I've found was that when I listened back and we were doing the animation down the line, it wasn't, the energy wasn't there because it was it was in their body language and it wasn't in their performance all the time. So... Do you record the performance in groups or individuals? Uh, I do. I do mostly act as one on one. Although we did do twos um, for Space Nova recently. Yeah. So I did the brother and sister together and the mum and dad, and that was really great. Generally, I work with ad agencies, and the people are like highly professional, and the people from the ad agencies have got their opinions. Exactly. And they yes. are worth so much, and they are often they're very experienced in what they want and what they need. Yeah. The only issue is committee. Yeah, no, we don't have any, like that's the great thing. I mean, we are recording 30 lines an hour. That's how fast I have to be. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. As you've evolved as a creative director, how have your techniques and methods changed over the years? As we've talked about, I've become a better communicator. Yep. to value the team. And one, one thing I did learn actually, which is a great bit of advice, is that actually people sometimes never remember the project that they worked on, but they remember the people. And I think the way you treat people and the way you were treated, 
particularly when you're working with producers and broadcasters overseas, one thing that we've learned is that sometimes the juniors you work with in the production studios who are the people that you communicate with every day, they're the ones that you should be really get on your side because they're the ones that are going to progress through the pipeline and suddenly they've become the commissioning editor for Nickelodeon. Yep. So every person in the production has is going to go somewhere else and so you really need to treat everyone well. That is so true. Like in my, I don't know, second job, I worked with someone who employed me 10 years later when he was the head. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, yeah, yeah so, so I think that's the thing is like treating people with, you know, and the thing is, it's not life or death. We don't work in a hospital situation. The stress levels don't have to be high all the time. So we're going to talk about some of your projects now. Yeah. The first project I want to talk about is GASP. Could you briefly describe the content, target audience and storyline of GASP? It was about a fish left home alone. Terry's original concept was based on the great film franchise, uh, Home Alone, and he imagined it through the eyes of a pet. Cool. The series is about um, what happens when the owners leave and what the pets do uh, at home. The audience was six to nine-year-olds. Could you tell us about the different characters in the show? We had a cat uh, who was a scaredy cat, a dog who didn't have a lot of brains called Dog Box, and we had Gasp. And then we also introduced a, a cockroach who was uh, who thought he was the fifth beetle. We had to create a lot of new characters around the book. And how did you develop the story and narrative from the book to the series? This is kind of an interesting process when you actually develop a series is that until you start to tell stories with your characters, you really don't understand what kind of characters they are. You can you can write character descriptions down and say this is who they are, but until you put those characters into a situation, you, you don't get to really know how they behave. And that's what characters are. They behave and they react. The book is about a kind of a really angry fish who wants to be the main pet. Yep. He came across as an angry person who didn't want to live with anyone else he was a real pessimist he didn't like the dog he didn't like the cat he only wanted the owner for himself and so when we looked at that through the eyes of a child was it was the and the broadcasters were saying to us it's not very likable you're basically saying it's okay to not like who you live with (laughs) so what do you do we flipped it so we turned him from being a pessimist to an optimist and we made him it was much more like what are we going to do today? We can do anything. And that that just changed the whole nature of the actual stories. Working with Terry Denton, who's now like the famous Terry Denton, was there any interaction with the writer and illustrator of the book? We pretty much had free reign. Yep. We would send him the drawings and the designs. He just loved everything. Terry's just a pure artist who just loved that his book was becoming you know, visualized. And it, it ended up being quite different to his the character in his book because we had to expand it out. Because what books are is just their one story ideas, particularly a picture book. Yep. We had to do 52 episodes. So we really needed to build into the story mechanics much more variety. Yep. We felt like this was Seinfeld with pets. That's the way that our story... <laughs> Yep. It was a sitcom. Basically, it was a, f- a stay-at-home pet sitcom. Whatever you put inside that situation was the episode. Cool. All righty. 
I now want to talk about what I see as your most well-known project and the most well-known property, which is Guess how much I love you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All righty. So guess how much I love you. If you could just describe the concept, target audience, and the property that it belonged to. So I guess how much I love you was based on the book series by Sam McBratney and Anita Jaram, which has sold over 30 million books. Uh, It's about experiencing the world through experienced and young eyes and through love. Yeah. Love is the currency of that children work with. They get paid in love. So when we actually understood that, we took this very simple picture book and turned it into our first season was 50 to 11 minutes. Could you describe for people who haven't seen it what the shows sort of looks like? was very atypical at the time for preschool. Preschool was very much very educational-based, but uh, we actually made this with Disney uh, USA and they were shifting to Disney Junior and they wanted narrative content for the young audience. So they wanted to have clear stories with dramatic within the world as opposed to just having a, a heavy educational content. It's a team of animals in a sort of Winnie the Pooh style. Yeah, it's a traditional watercolour world in a natural world with hares and foxes. So it's a kind of European world. That's where the the books uh, were originally written. And how did you win the series? Walker Books in the UK had just activated a new role within the company and they were wanting to make properties into animation. And Suzanne had an opportunity to pitch. Apparently Disney had pitched it as well and we – they wanted to change everything and we just basically said we would create a series that was really true to the heart of the books and not change the design. Yeah. So we pitched the concept to them how we would tell it, that we would tell the story through the characters over the seasons and allow each day to be a discovery. Cool. And what was the biggest challenges adapting the characters and illustrations to animation? The broadcasters wanted to have contemporary traditional. So they wanted it to look traditional, but they didn't want it to look old-fashioned. So what we had to do was create a look that felt fresh in a kind of to the audience's eyes, which was kind of a bit more crisp because a lot of traditional content can look a little bit um, soft. Yep. We used Toon Boom. All the backgrounds were done digitally, but we did a lot of watercolour sampling. Um, So we had very strong palettes with texture layering to create a watercolour look, but none of it was done actually in watercolour. It was all done through Photoshop. From the design point of view, what was your main aim? Our main aim was to actually take these beautifully drawn illustrative characters and we did really extensive turnarounds that was the main thing is actually we because in animation for me particularly hand-drawn animation you want the animation to feel solid in whatever perspective that character is being drawn in within the shot so yeah so we gave really like 12 point turnarounds so that we showed what the head looked like in all the different use of space and that way we knew that we could control the quality yeah started my career as an in-betweener. To me, the in-betweens are what defines a show. Yeah. So if you've got a really great three-quarter front and a really solid profile and a really good front position, and then if you just do some really solid in-betweens, you're going to have a, a really nice turnaround in space. Yeah. So we concentrated really on the model pack. 
What do you think was the biggest achievement of the show? Sam McBratney, who was the author of the book, who's this delightful Irish man who only died two months ago, I think, he told us that he wished he'd written that story. To us, that actually felt that we had captured what that book that had sold over 30 million. And that book was about, you know, I can jump higher than you. No, I can jump higher than you. I, I love you all the way to the moon. No, I love you all the way to the moon and back. It was a big job to maintain the integrity of that, what people loved universally, because it's a universal success in every country. Yeah. We had to be really careful about what it was that people loved. Do you think that you modernised the look through the animation? Yeah, I think definitely the Toon Boom allowed us to give it a contemporary feel. We kind of bit mapped the texture to make it the characters feel, because it's easy to make backgrounds look like watercolour, but it's very hard to do that to characters. Yeah. And it had a traditional hand-drawn feel because there were hand-drawn elements in the Toon Boom allows you to do that, have those hand-drawn elements, even though they're, the, the characters have got like, you know, inner skeletons. Keyframe animation in a 2D style. Yeah, exactly. What was the public response to the animation? I think it's going to become an evergreen because we continually do get feedback from it when it kind of goes on to these different libraries. Cool. The best feedback that I had heard was via a broadcaster who said they had someone write into them and they had a child who was autistic and who had never expressed anything. And so at the end of one episode, this autistic child apparently turned around and said to their the parent, guess how much I love you? And they'd never expressed that. Oh, wow. That's cool. What are you working on at the moment? And are you developing any new skills? We are currently animating a show called Space Nova, which is so great. I've just absolutely loved this show. There's so much science depth in it. And I'm, I'm a big science nerd been able to inject so much cool science into the show it's about australian family in space in the year 2162 cool and it's in 3d so it's our first big 3d show and so the pipeline has been quite different but the thing that struck me is about how even though the pipeline is slightly different all the same fundamentals of 2d animation apply it's just the pipeline is slightly different yeah you know that's given us a lot of confidence in that Storytelling is storytelling. You just change the medium. It doesn't matter. And it, it looks amazing. Like it, it looks like it's going to be a really great show. And are you finding that it's more challenging, the 3D, or is it just similar to the 2D development? It's more challenging in the upfront world building because you have to. we had to be architects, basically. We had to design so many angles and views of all our sets. Uh, that was really worthwhile because then the sets look fantastic. Um, and the lighting um, within those, you have to pre-think. We, we pre-built lighting into our spacesuits, which was a fantastic decision because it's not treated as visual effect. It's actually inbuilt into the models. So that was, you know, because in terms of long-form production, like we have limitations to how many sets we can build per episode, yep. how many VFX shots we've got. So we have to write the story in order to, uh, to actually work to the, the limitations. But uh, the thing I'm most excited about is that we've got this really high-quality show with Australian voices, and that's what's going to knock it out of the park. People go, wow, that's in our own voice, and it looks really cool. That's really cool. So the final question, what would you like to work on in the future? I would like to work on more Australian content because it's so important that for our kids that they hear content in their own voice because I think when, when they grow up, 
they'll give it a, they'll give it a go. I mean, it's really hard enough to get Australians to watch Australian content now. But if you if your audience doesn't see quality content as a kid, they won't believe that we're capable of it. So I just want to keep making content with Australian voices. I agree totally. Like the iconic shows that reflect ourselves, not just in animation. Yeah, like Muriel's Wedding and The Castle and even Skippy. Yeah. Like Skippy is an icon. They're, they're powerful. Uh, we're talking to this astrophysicist at Sydney Uni who's like the head of astronomy. He was saying that yep. it was um, lost in space as a kid that made him want to go into space. Do you feel like your animations have had an impact on children? We had this young girl come into our studio one time and she was um, she had autism. And she loved this show yep. that we did, Skinner Boys. And it was Skinner Boys is kind of like your classic Saturday morning kind of Scooby-Doo cartoon. It's not high-end. It's kind of middle of the road, funny characters. And we had this one character who didn't emote very much. She was she was hard to place within this cast of really funny boys. It was about these three brothers. So the lady, we spoke about it later, later and she said the, char- the fact that this character did not emote so heavily really resonated with this girl yeah they're the things i think when you're a storyteller is to actually know that whatever story you're telling it it has an impact it's connecting somewhere out there and that's why we do it cool i think that's a, a really nice story to end it on thanks very much for sharing your knowledge with us i really enjoyed it and thanks to you for all the work that you do supporting our industry all right thank you very much it was my pleasure Thanks very much for listening. If you like this podcast, it would be fantastic if you could go to iTunes and give us a positive review. It helps other people find us. You can check us out at mastersofmotion.com.au where you can see all the work that we talked about today and lots more outstanding motion design work. Or you could come find us on Facebook. You can find out more about Joe Bogue at slrproductions.com. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you have a great week. This is a motion. Bye-bye.